This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. There are no easy solutions to Ontario's health care and inflation challenges. That was the message in Tuesday's speech from the throne, setting out the agenda of the governing Doug Ford PCs as they start their second majority mandate. It is a far cry from the slogan they got reelected on, the promise to get it done. Some stakeholders are taking comfort from the number of references to exhausted healthcare workers as an acknowledgement that the Tories understand what's happening nearly two and a half years after the pandemic began. And it is certainly a contrast to what we have heard from Health Minister Sylvia Jones, that this is not a crisis. Some have started to predict that this may be the beginning of the end for the Ford PCs. But with four years until the next election, where do we go from here? And can we expect any improvements? The day after the throne speech on Wednesday, Libby was joined by Bob Richardson, liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations. John McEtitian, conservative strategist and president of Bradgate Research Group as well as Dr. Doris Grinspun, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. I was actually uh, thrilled with my president to be invited to the throne speech by the premier and uh, sat in the, in the main parquet there. So I was really hopeful that in the acknowledgement of the throne speech about inflation like never before, four decades, the worst, and the acknowledgement, as you said, Lily, of nurses and other healthcare workers. And yes, they did kind of mention the challenges. Uh, I was really hopeful that get it done meant repeal Bill 124 because it's the, it's the only difference between Ontario and any other jurisdiction, whether it's in Canada or in the U.S., Lily. Uh, everybody is suffering a nursing shortage that is mega crisis, but Ontario has the added uh, burden of Bill 124, which then makes uh, very easy for nurses to say, you know, I had it some point somewhere else. So you're disappointed, but you somewhat conciliatory? Am I getting where you're at on this? Well, here is what I hope it will happen, Lily, and I hope the Premier will hear this uh, message and we have conveyed it to him. Uh, as you know, they're finishing negotiations with the teachers, uh, likely before the end of this month, I hope. I hope that after that, and I did ask um, Minister Jones to please meet with ONA, the Ontario Nurses Association, who does the negotiations for nursing, and get it done, get on with the negotiations before end of August, and then move on with fast negotiations so we don't continue to hemorrhage registered nurses and nurse practitioners and others outside of Ontario or to agencies that charge the hospitals and others 
as you know, mega, mega money that is being paid anyways from taxpayers' dollars. Speaking of those agencies, John McEtishan, I mean, this is a, a kind of a, a detail, but there's been flack on Twitter. Apparently, one of those agencies is owned by the wife of Mike Harris. Is that kind of a fair uh, conclusion to draw that they're, you know, cronies and stuff like that? No, of course not. Uh, you know, <laughs> to, to limit anybody's involvement in doing business with the government, based on having a uh, political party membership or a past connection is just ludicrous. Then you'd have nobody ever participating in politics and nobody, uh, you know, helping solve the problem. So, but it's the kind of thing that when you've got two parties, uh, you know, with no leaders, so we have no real opposition, um, you know, the people that are there trying to, uh, you know, manage the deck chairs on the Titanic, if you will, are trying to, you know, change the subject and search for anything they can. So, you know, that's it's annoying. It's not fair. It's unrealistic. But it's to be expected, given where the Liberals and the NDP are right now. Bob, getting back to the bigger picture, did this throne speech send a message that uh, they get where people are at? Or do they come off as being kind of out of touch? Uh, I, 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 I'm going to say neither at the moment. I think throne speeches are archaic, uh, and I think the only people who talk about uh, throne speeches are sort of Queen's Park insiders. It is an opportunity for the government to lay out kind of its its plans going forward. Uh, I thought that they did not a bad job on laying out plans for the economy and jobs. They sent out a clear uh, signal that we need some fiscal responsibility over the next period of time at all levels of government. Uh, they showed their interest in the infrastructure. On health, they said, geez, it's important to us, but they didn't really put a path forward, uh, which they need to do over the next period of time. So uh, I would give it sort of mixed marks, but as throne speeches go, uh, this wasn't a terrible one. It wasn't a great one. I would say it was uh, medium in the middle, and uh, I thought it was fine. Bob Richardson, liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations. John McEtishan, conservative strategist and president of Bradgate Research Group, as well as Dr. Doris Grinspun, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. They joined Libby the day after the throne speech. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Still with the health care crisis, Canada does not have a national system for tracking or preventing shortages of nurses and other medical workers. Experts say that's part of the reason we are facing emergency room shutdowns and service cutbacks in some Ontario hospitals. There's also no way to track how many medical professionals are working in various specialties or regions in which they are working. The president of the Canadian Medical Association says this is an obstacle to meaningful improvement in Canadian health care. So is part of the answer to our problems yet another federal agency? Jean-Paul Soucy is a Ph.D. student in epidemiology at the Dalla-Lana School of Public Health. He joined Libby on Wednesday. See, what we're missing here in Canada is a kind of a Canada-wide way to track just how much our hospital system is under strain. So I'm talking about really basic things like how many people do we have uh, in hospitals, how many people do we have 
uh, in the ICU, uh, how many people there are there because of COVID, how many beds are missing because they don't have the staff to uh, support those beds. Um, these are just numbers that we really, we certainly can't get at a national level in Canada. In many cases, there's really there's really very little information, uh, even at the provincial or even the local level, on just how much our healthcare system is under strain, um, and just how much we're we're uh, missing uh, our capacity because of that. Is 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 that because uh, health systems are run by the provinces? I mean, why is that? Yeah, so certainly one of the one of the uh, reasons why our our health data is so fragmented is because healthcare is viewed as the domain of the provincial governments, and as a result, we have um, you know each province has its own health system as well as we have you know uh, military health system, et cetera. And so we certainly do have a fragmented healthcare system that is considered the responsibility of the provinces. However, this is not an insurmountable problem. Um, I want to point uh, your listeners to the example of the United States. Um, near the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, they realized that they needed a system for tracking uh, just what I was talking about, hospital utilization, uh, how much COVID patients were contributing to that strain on the hospitals. Um, and so in uh, mid-2020, they actually rolled out a new system uh, that tracked that across every state and, in fact, almost every hospital. You can actually get those numbers uh, even even now today. Um and on a more or less real-time basis, you know, they're updated every single day. And the way that the United States did this, and they certainly have a more fragmented healthcare system than us, I think it's fair to say, is that they tied the receipt of federal money through the Medicare and Medicaid programs to reporting these statistics to the federal government. And as a result, they got this great, wonderful, publicly accessible data set on just how much the healthcare system uh, is under strain across the whole country that any citizen can access. But they, but we don't we don't get our money directly from the feds. The feds send send it to the provinces. The provinces do it. Absolutely. Um, and at the moment, there are very little in terms of uh, in terms of conditions attached to those tens of billions of dollars that are uh, transferred from the federal government uh, to the provincial governments for direct healthcare spending, as well as things like uh, research. Uh, medical research and things like that. Um, and I think that that is, frankly, an opportunity for per- perhaps um, being able to compel the provinces to put out standardized, timely data so that we can actually understand our healthcare system and how that's being put under strain and where the deficiencies are and where the gaps are. Because right now, the provinces themselves have very little incentive to actually put out these numbers so that we can actually compare what's going on uh, within provinces as well as across provinces. It's not uh, something that the provinces clearly want to willingly do, um, many provinces at this point, because, look, who wants to put out data that could be potentially embarrassing uh, or make you look um, poor or, or worse than another another province's healthcare system, right? And so that's kind of why I think we need a, a federal intervention here to be kind of that, that great leveler uh, so that we can actually get those numbers out of the provinces and so that they're comparable so we can actually figure out what's going on, figuring out what policies work, what policies don't. Uh, and as it, as it stands, or as you, as you say, there's really no appetite to put out these numbers um, uh, independent of, of, of any kind of legal obligation because um, I think it would, it would make a lot of, a lot of health ministers look, 
not so not good. Yeah. yeah, I totally understand the hesitancy, but um, you know, we need a functional health healthcare system, and and right now we just don't have the data to to really figure out how to make that happen. Jean-Paul Soucy, PhD student in epidemiology at the Dalla School of Public Health. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, history is made at the Unifor Convention in Toronto. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Lana Payne has been elected as the new president of Canada's largest private sector union, the first woman to hold that position at Unifor. Payne comes to the job well-informed as the former National Secretary-Treasurer of Unifor. The leadership vote came after longtime former National President Jerry Diaz stepped down in March for health reasons and was later charged with violating the Code of Ethics and democratic practices of the union's constitution. Libby spoke about the history-making change at Unifor with Dr. Rafael Gomez, Associate Professor of Employment Relations at the University of Toronto. It represents, I think, a shift that's been happening in the union movement for the past 20, maybe 30 years. Um, You know, I think maybe we still have a stereotype of the union member. Just conjure that up in your head. You think what? Blue-collar? manufacturing, male, white, uh, that's all changed. Uh, the, the typical union member now is more likely to be female than male by several percentage points, like a five percentage point difference. Like overall in Canada, we have about 30% of the workforce unionized. Of course, that splits in many different ways. But again, the one way it does split is, you know, women are now more likely to be union members than men. Right. But I I would guess, and and please correct Mm -hmm. me if I'm wrong, that the women would be very heavily represented in the healthcare unions and in the civil service unions, which uh, is not Unifor. Well, no, Unifor has entered that space because they're so big. Remember, Unifor is an amalgam, uh, a conglomerate, if you will, of the uh, union movement. It's actually absorbed lots of workers that now have essentially become part of the what's called the broader public sector. You know, that sector that's yeah. basically funded, regulated by government. Uh, think about a lot of, uh, you know, services, social services that are kind of done by third parties. Those have increasingly become unionized. And that's where Unifor has seen its biggest growth. Um, by far, you know, the auto workers are still a huge piece of the Unifor um, puzzle and also the, the culture that spawned Unifor. But don't forget, the growth is not there. It's in services and what we might call the broader public sector. Broader public sector in Canada now has 77% of the workforce unionized versus, this is crazy, 14% in the private sector. Yep, yep. Uh, I don't know what that says about the future of the union movement, but... um... Yeah, it puts it into question because that's almost a huge imbalance. Because if you think about it, the needs and interests of all workers share a lot of commonalities, right? decency, good pay, fairness, all of that. However, it's differently when you think about major projects that might create jobs in the private sector, but kind of stand against the norms or values of, say, a typical public sector worker. Think about energy projects. 
that could generate huge numbers of good-paying private sector jobs, but which might be opposed by the kind of value system that are present in those public sector uh, workforces, right? So, yeah, it does create a division. It creates a bifurcation, an inequality, if you will, because if you have good protection, good-paying jobs in one sector, and it's, it's there because of unionization, but it's all dominated by public sector, then you think about the resentment that could build up in private sector workers who don't see the same protections coming to them. Well, I think the resentment is already there, quite frankly. Um, final question to you, and that is, uh, could part of the election of a woman, the first ever woman, be that, uh, you know, if they're coming out of a crisis, basically? Uh, maybe mm. it's a bit of a poison chalice? Oh, that's interesting, right? Kind of the way in which political parties have historically done that in Canada, right, to our yep. female leaders, put them in place, Kim Campbell and others. Um I don't think so. you got to remember, Unifor is a big, uh, powerful uh, organization in Canada. The election is like any election, <clears throat> you know, as opposed to an appointment. This was a membership-based uh, and driven decision, right? It's all votes count. And I think this reflects, as I said, the changing composition of the typical union member, the way the union uh, movement has evolved over the last 20 years, and perhaps Unifor signaling that's the space in which they will continue to advocate for. Dr. Rafael Gomez, Associate Professor of Employment Relations at the University of Toronto. He was in conversation with Libby on Thursday. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Inflation is causing some stress for most Canadians, but we're managing. According to a new poll by Yahoo Canada and Maru Public Opinion, half of us are worried about affordability the necessities. A majority at 59% believe the country is headed toward a recession. And just over half, 53%, feel the Bank of Canada hiking interest rates will lead to a recession. Annual inflation is tracking over 8%. But there was good news out of the U.S. on Wednesday as the year-over-year cost of living did not go up in July. Moshe Lander is Senior Lecturer of Economics at Concordia University in Montreal. John Wright is Executive Vice President of Maru Public Opinion. They joined Libby to talk about inflation and how it's affecting us. I've been doing the polling, as you know, for a long time. So I remember 1990 to 93 with the deep, you know, uh, recession that we had then. And if you fast forward to today, it looks nothing like that. I mean, we have uh, you know, employment opportunities everywhere. We're not seeing, you know, for sale signs or cleaning out of inventory. And we, you know, clearly don't see the stagnation in the economy like we did then. So maybe it's going to come. But what I thought out of the poll that I did last week and the polling that I continue to do in both Canada and the United States is how comfortable people have become with the inflation. And what I mean is the numbers really didn't move from June to now, you would expect that people would say, you know, uh, it's, it's getting worse. I'm pulling my horns in even more. You know, I, I think we, we are in a recession. And there was none of that. In fact, in the United States, my numbers, which will be coming out tomorrow, show Americans actually easing themselves and, and you know, off of their belt tightening. So I think that was it. The tenor of it was not so much panic or 
you know, an affirmation that we were in a recession, but more of, yeah, you know what? I'm not, I'm, it's not hurting me a lot. I, I think I can get through this, but there is a sense that they'll watch it for the fall and see whether something comes of it. Uh, well, I think in the last month, at least in the States, the reason that that inflation didn't go up anymore was because gas prices dropped and they've dropped here too. How important is that, Moshe? Well, I, I think where we're seeing inflation is from three channels. One is through gas prices, one is through food prices, and the other one is through rapidly rising rent. So anytime you see those three things lay off, uh, I, I'm sure that's going to probably ease people's minds. In the case of falling gas prices, in some cases that's just because uh, governments are trying to remove gasoline taxes and things like that to, to try and help. Food prices generally aren't going to rise as much in the summer anyway because we're not going to be importing as many of our fruits and vegetables uh, because we have our, our growing season. And rents are one of those things that are continuing to rise rapidly, but they're generally only going to be seen once a year when you have to renegotiate your your contract. And so many people might not have seen that yet. And so it might be one of those false sense of securities that somehow they escape the rising rents. Uh, but maybe sometime in the next five months, they're going to find out that uh, they're not immune to it either. About that belief that a lot of people have that it's actually the rate hikes that are fueling inflation, how significant is it? I mean, will that change anything if people believe it? That the rate hikes are fueling inflation? Well, yeah, it's definitely people, not rate hikes. <laughs> yeah, that, no, a lot of people believe that because... No, they're, they're, they're fundamentally that, wrong. Increases in interest rates do not fuel inflation. Increases in interest rates stop inflation. And that's exactly why the Bank of Canada is doing it. And so I'd actually disagree with John that I do think that we've got at least another full percentage point increase coming in Canada. Just how it's going to be parceled out in the final five months is going to be uh, for the Bank of Canada to decide if they want to do it in one shot or over the, the remaining few meetings of the year. Uh, but the fact is that interest rate hikes usually take about 12 to 18 months before they've had their full impact. And we only started increasing interest rates in February. So we've still yet to see the full force of higher interest rates in trying to stem inflation. John is right. It, it could have impact on a lot of other macroeconomic variables. Uh, and the analogy then that your listeners might appreciate is that it's probably more reminiscent of the stagflation phenomenon in the 1970s mm-hmm. than it is the uh, recession that we saw in the early 90s and in the 70s with high inflation and a stagnating economy. Central banks back then were not as independent as they are today, but they had the same problems that they had to contend with, which is if you increase interest rates, that could have a whole lot of other damaging effects. And if you don't increase interest rates, then inflation really can get out of control, like we saw in the 1980s. And it can be something that uh, individuals, households become apathetic to. Moshe Lander, Senior Lecturer of Economics at Concordia University in Montreal, and John Wright, Executive Vice President of Maru Public Opinion. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. 
Fight Back with Libby Zneimer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics, and we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Mark in Welland phoned about inflation. If you think about it, everything that we import comes by ship. Ships run on bunker fuel, which is a form of diesel. The price has doubled, in some cases over doubled. And with the tens and thousands of gallons they go through, you can imagine the rise in the cost of the goods coming into North America. Everything, all the groceries, the cars to the dealerships, everything we consume goes by tractor trailer. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Arlene in Lindsay, who phoned about salaries for nurses during the current shortage in Ontario hospitals. As far as I'm concerned, the nurses are not paid more than enough. They should get thousands and thousands of dollars more. These people are the first people that you meet when you go into a hospital, and they are always gracious, and they're always right there and working hard. We pay rock stars. We pay entertainers thousands and thousands of dollars. They're billionaires. They've got planes and houses, etc., as you know. And these poor nurses, nobody cares about them. And it's time that we really look at these people. They're humans, okay? And the fact that they are on the front lines and doing this, it slays me. Like, honestly, they are treated horribly, and they are disrespected, etc. I've seen it personally when I was in the hospital. I actually went in a few months ago. And the way people talk to these nurses, you can't pay them enough. I know I'm being emotional here, but as far as I'm concerned, they're worth their weight in gold. And the government needs to smarten up because if you don't have nurses, you don't have anything. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fight Back Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.